0: welcome to the unstoppable ceo podcast with steve gordon welcome to the unstoppable ceo podcast i'm your host steve gordon and i gotta tell you you're you're in for a treat today i'm talking with david c baker and uh i've been looking forward to this uh for for a number of weeks now david is an author he's a speaker and an advisor to entrepreneurial creatives worldwide. He's written five books, he's advised 900 plus firms, keynoted conferences all over the world, and has, his work has been written about in the Wall Street Journal and Fast Company, Forbes, USA Today, pretty much everywhere you would ever read anything about business. And uh, I gotta tell you, I, the, the real treat that you're gonna get today is we're gonna talk a little bit about his most recent book, The Business of Expertise. Uh, it is, I think, the most unique book I've ever read on how to build a business based on your expertise. And so if you're in any kind of service business, then this podcast episode is probably gonna be one that you're gonna wanna save down in iTunes and listen to again and again and again. Um, He's been recently featured in the New York Times and uh, had a full article right up in there. Uh, He really is the expert's expert. So very excited to have you here, David, welcome.
1: Thank you. I at the beginning when you were introducing somebody, I thought he's got this wrong. Is he talking about me or somebody else? No, I'm re- <laughs> I'm really glad to to be here. I've listened to your show and really enjoyed it. And I know a few of the people that you've had in the past. So I don't always look forward to every podcast guesting experience, but I really have been honestly looking forward to this. So thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure and great to have you
0: here. And uh I I guess, I think the best place to start is maybe if you can give everybody a little bit of context. I mean, we gave them the intro, but what's, what's the real story of how you got to be the expert's expert? What got you to this point?
1: Boy, I wish it was such a beautifully choreographed story, right? Because it's been a series of making some good decisions, some bad ones, but not so bad that I couldn't recover from them and so on. So, I I grew up overseas. I didn't really come to the U.S. to live until I was 18. And I was on the path of academia. So I was in graduate school. I was planning to teach ancient slash dead languages, Syriac, Arabic, Aramaic, Greek, Hebrew, and so on. And the, the kinds of things that nobody's interested in. In fact, all of your listeners just tuned out right there. You know, <laughs> and I was um, working in a, at a publisher, and I was in charge of marketing. So I had this marketing bug that was that it was it fascinated me the whole process. And I was sitting on the couch one day, and I was looking through the newspaper at the ads, and I just realized how badly they sucked. It was just so disgusting to me. And I said to myself, you know, self, you could probably do this better. And I was looking for a different job anyway. So I decided to start an agency, which illustrates exactly why so many people start agencies is because it's easy to do. Right. The, the barrier to entry is zero, which means that there's no regulation about it. It means anybody can hang a shingle out and call themselves an expert. And I was not an expert, even though I somewhat called myself one at the time. But that began a process of a long, lifelong process of learning. And underneath all of this genetically, I've always felt like I'm sort of a data scientist who does something else, who is an advisor or who is a speaker or who is an author. And so I've been driven by this desire to know things. And I think that's what drives so many experts. It's this sense that I don't want to make stuff up, right? I I know what word you thought I was just going to say. I don't want to make stuff up. I want to know what I'm talking about. I want to give people tremendous value. And each of us has tasted both things, right? We've tasted competence. I'll bet if we had time, you could tell me where you have tasted competence and you would tell me where you have tasted incompetence and you never want to go back to the incompetence, right? Standing in front of a on a stage and somebody asks a question and you should know the answer to it and you don't, right? Those moments of panic drive you to expertise. So that was the beginning of my journey. And it's been a fantastic journey. I feel so grateful that the fact that I can be involved in in just following my curiosity and trying to get to know KNOW so many times and then help teach other experts how to be experts. So it's been really fun.
0: Well, it sounds like a, a tremendous journey. And uh, after going through your book, it's, it's clear that you've probably given more thought to this whole business of expertise than most people have, um, probably by you know, maybe an order of 100 times more. Mm-hmm. Um, you've really taken a unique approach to it, and, and I can't wait to dive into that. Before we do, I want to talk a little bit about some of the bumps in the road, and and uh, you know, you don't have to share any of the details about the bumps. I'm more concerned, more interested, really, in the things that you do to get over those bumps, get over the obstacles when they pop up. And I find that everybody everybody has a unique approach, a unique way to push through those. And I find that just very, very valuable.
1: Mm-hmm yeah because if we just stopped at your introduction and then what i just said a minute ago it would sound like a bed of roses so to speak and it hasn't always been that way there have been some uh, you mean it wasn't smooth sailing you're the first mm -hmm. guest we've had Yeah, right i don't believe that at all yeah no i would guess now in fact i've listened to the episode so i know some of your guests have been very honest as well no it it hasn't been all smooth sailing and the the darker moments for me have been caused by either me not being very self-aware. In other words, I, I'm i being an expert, but I'm not wrapping it in humanity. That's me not being self-aware. Another would be me letting my own emotional issues get in the way. So if I am happen to be struggling with depression, which is something that I have had to work through my entire life, or when there's a larger economic depression happening around me, and I haven't been as thoroughly prepared for it. So, or when I don't have a thick enough skin, like I've, I've disappointed some particular client, and whether it's correct on their part or not, it doesn't matter. I still feel badly. How do I push through that? The most recent deep struggle for me was about three years ago when I was struggling with another bout of depression, and I wasn't taking care of myself physically, I was working too hard, and I remember coming to the very end of my rope. And I think your listeners are, they're in a field that's automatically lonely because any CEO, any leader, any expert is swimming against the grain. They are saying things that most everybody else does not believe. If they believe them, they wouldn't need the expert to come in and shine a light in those dark areas. So you are, you're swimming upstream, you're fighting against the grain, and it can be a very lonely job. Anyway, so I was at one of those lower points, and I remember just being totally honest with myself about whether I was even still relevant. And, and I wrote this article about how to remain relevant as you grow older. And it was full of self-examination, and it was very helpful for me. And it basically relaunched my career. I decided to reposition the firm, build the website from scratch, write another book. And for me, like each of us has different things. Some people, when they're starting to struggle with something, they need to go on a run. Other people need to go spend time with somebody they love. What I need to do is I need to write. If I get antsy and I start to hit a tough spot, I have to push everything aside and I just have to write. And it doesn't matter if it's a book or an article. It may be something that nobody ever reads. I just have to start articulating insight that will be useful to me personally but may also be useful to somebody else, which means that I am – I am making assumptions that other people are like me and it's okay to dive in there and start to figure some things out. So I don't know if that's kind of what you were asking, but that's maybe TMI land, but that's, that's, those are some of the things that I struggle with.
0: I, I actually love that because I can relate to it. Um, and, and you're the first person who's ever come on and said the thing that, that they do when, when times are, are difficult is, is that they sit down and write. And I, I do that often myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, for me, it's funny because I, I, no one ever would have pegged me as anybody who could have put two sentences together when I was, uh, you know, in in my teens. Um, and now the majority of the way that I make my money is through writing, getting my ideas down and out. We're going to talk about the importance of that for positioning. Um, but I will tell you there, I found no better way to work through your thinking Mm -hmm. than to sit down and write. And I I would imagine that's, that's largely why you do it as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I don't remember who said it, but, and I quoted it in the most recent book. It's the idea that you don't even really know what you think until you write and express differently you might say, listen, it doesn't happen like this. You don't figure something out. You don't get clarity and then you articulate it. It's not a one, two step process. It's more happening at the same time. The clarity comes in the articulation, not before the articulation, right? So figuring out exactly what you think is a process of writing it down. There's so many other benefits, which I know we'll talk about, but the primary benefit for me is really to figure out what I think, and it grounds me again. All of us are so different, but we need, there, everybody has to have some way to be grounded. And for me, writing is how I'm grounded. It pushes the rest of the world out. And it begin, I begin to see the value I bring to the world again when my self-confidence has been a little bit eroded.
0: Well, I'll tell you, it, the act of, of taking a thought and pulling it out to where you can observe it separately I have found that to be one of the most important practices. I won't say skill. I don't know that I'm skilled at it, but I practice it a lot. And whether it's to write an article or write a book or, or, you know, something like that for consumption or simply just to, when I'm struggling with a decision or trying to understand something or grappling with a situation, just to get down, you know, get it down on paper and write it so I can see it.
1: Right. Yeah. I find that so valuable. Yeah, even like the the distinction between having a thought and holding it in your head and then mentioning it at a key point in the conversation is different than all of that, but then writing it down and then going to your little satchel or whatever you're you're carrying and pulling it out and say, this is something I've been thinking about. Like, and the difference there is that you're not letting somebody else's reaction shape what you think too early in the process you have to have that's why if you're writing a book on something I'll bet you don't go out there and read what everybody else has said about it and then you kind of summarize that and write a book I think a lot of authors write something and then they may read the other literature to see if they've missed something but they have to develop it themselves right it's a very intense very personal process this idea of being an expert
0: yeah very much so and, uh, and I think that's a, a good transition point to the next part of the conversation. I want to come back from a quick break and I want to dive into the book that you've written because you've, you've written a book titled The Business of Expertise. The people who are listening are experts and being in this business of expertise, I think is very, very different than any other business. And I want to unpack all of that when we come back. We'll be back with more from David C. Baker. Thanks so much. Now back to the interview. Welcome back. This is Steve Gordon. I am interviewing David C. Baker. He is the author of The Business of Expertise. And David, you know, we're we're talking about using writing to sort of develop expertise and use that as a problem-solving tool and a way to push through challenges and all that. Um, I want to talk a little bit now about the work that you have done to, to really lay down on paper what it takes to build a, a business around your own expertise. And, and I believe very strongly and have for all of my career that, that our types of businesses are quite different than what the MBAs are taught about in business school and what's written about in most business books mm-hmm. and that it takes, it takes a completely different approach to build a business based on what is between your ears, based on your knowledge and be known for that. So, um, You know, I've read the book um, and there are just so many great things in it, but I'd love for you to just give us kind of a high level kind of look at it and then we'll dive into the details.
1: Sure. So it seems like there, as I look across the landscape for experts, there are two things that are really working against us. One is as experts, one is the world around us, and one is who we are as people, so the world around us has more information available, more opportunities for experts to shine in a particular area than ever before. We're just inundated with information. For instance, we just closed on a piece of property this morning—a 61-acre farm, sort of a gentleman's farm—and one of the first things I'm going to need to do is to rebuild the gravel road. It's a—it's four tenths of a mile. It's long. It's really a mess, and so. Obviously, to justify the big tractor purchase, right? I've got to now deliver on this. And so I'm lying in bed thinking about this. And the next morning, my first step is to go to YouTube because I assume (laughs) there there are going to be some fools who have more time on their hands than they should, who are going to have talked through every step of the process. So my expectation is that I'm going to find all the information I want. It's going to be immediate and it's going to be accurate and it's going to be free. Okay. So that's the world that experts are trying to work in, right? Where we have everybody around us is assuming that expertise is free, quick, and accurate. That's one thing that's different. The other thing that's different is that experts themselves tend to be very curious people. And so, and they're good at, they're good enough at almost everything. And so you have these people who are good at almost, good enough at almost everything working in a world that is, full of shiny rabbits and so the temptation is for experts to be all over the place that's the opposite of how experts should think because without a really courageous position decision, at the outset of this journey, they will never be experts whose expertise is irreplaceable. Instead, they'll know a lot about a lot of things, but their information will be very shallow. So we have to counter the world and we have to counter ourselves and make courageous positioning decisions and dig really, really deep so that out in the world, there are only, and I quantify this in the book, but shortcut there is that there shouldn't be fewer than 10 experts who can replace us and there should be no more than a, than a couple hundred experts that can replace us that gives us a big enough playground that we can own and from there we can dive in in a repeatable way and we can start to notice patterns and then monetize them so that's the context in my mind for expertise
0: so let's let's start with that point on on sort of choosing the playground that you're gonna play on. Um, I was talking with an architect beginning of the week, and if we take the the idea of an architect as an expert, and and they are, um, that architect might come back to you and say, well, that's great, but there's, you know, like 100,000 architects in the United States. Um, you know, how am I gonna find my playground to play on that meets your criteria?
1: Mm -hmm. Right. So the first thing they would have to figure out is whether they want to develop a vertical expertise or a horizontal expertise. And I try to define this in the book. A vertical expertise would be designing hospitals, for instance, or designing daycare centers or ATMs or banks or something like that. That would be a vertical expertise. A horizontal expertise would be some particular service area or the nature of the service that's across a lot of verticals. So it might mean public gathering places that lots of different industries might use or it—you know, something like that. So they have to figure out where and they have to understand what the pros and cons are of vertical versus horizontal expertise. Next, they're going to look at what they've been good at because expertise does not emerge from something that hasn't already happened so these this particular mythical architect is going to have probably six different options for focusing and they're going to have to say no to five of those now there are some caveats there but normally have to say no to five of these and then whatever they have been an expert At they're gonna, the the rest of the expertise, the rest of their life is gonna flow from that making that choice. And then there are lots of other decisions they need to make. But essentially, what they're doing is they're developing an expertise so that a prospect or a client will not easily find elsewhere. Otherwise, this expert doesn't have much power in the marketplace and they can't charge a premium worse than that. Even if money isn't important to them, their clients won't listen to them very carefully. Because they don't feel like the expertise is so deeply grounded like they would have expected it to be.
0: Well, and I think we often overlook that last point. I mean, you just touched on it, but this whole notion of compliance by our clients, um, you know, it. I, I always like to equate it to, to the doctor, and we, all, we, we, we probably overuse the doctor analogy, but medicine has done a number of things right when you look at expertise. First of all, they make you take your pants down when you go in and see them, and that generally establishes authority in the conversation.
1: Right, or you get right. sued, one or the other.
0: Right, one or the other. And, but one of the things that, you know, if you go in to see a doctor and he prescribes a cure, if the doctor doesn't have enough expertise to convince you to go and fill that prescription, then there's no transformation that's going to happen. There's no cure that's going to happen. And that right. that is the same whether you're in business consulting or law or architecture or anything. The client has to believe in you enough to go
1: and fill the prescription. Right. Otherwise, right. what are we doing? Exactly. And then you go to the pharmacy and it looks a little bit different. They're not paid as well. They don't have the same level of certification. They're doing a little bit more order taking, right? So if we talk, if we chart the the relative expertise of all the different segments under professional services, maybe we put doctors at the top, that's probably, and they're the most regulated. It takes the longest to get that expertise. They are not sitting there one day and saying, you know what, I'm a heart surgeon, but I have always wanted to do brain surgery. I am like, I'm just going to put another plaque out there on the door. And the next person that comes in that needs both, I'm just going to offer them a discount. You know, that never happens. But as you move down this chain, you know, halfway down might be engineers or architects. And then you have people down in marketing where they're constantly saying, I have always wanted to learn how to do that. So I'm going to do it. And that's why the certification level is basically non-existent. It's why they're most easily replaceable. It's why they make the least amount of money. Like I do think you're, you're exactly right. The, the examples of doctors are overused, but it's still, it's just so appropriate because of how they understand expertise versus the other branches of professional services.
0: Yeah. And I've often wondered where, where the master plan came from, you know, where the, where the white lab coats make you wait in the waiting room, fill out some paperwork, pay in advance, right?
1: You know, pay, like, pay a premium. Like Dr. House, that TV show, right? right. With the worst customer service imaginable, but still you, and you would never go to him unless it was your last choice. But if you're going to die, if you don't go to him, you don't really care how you're treated. That's, that's how it works. But a lot of quote unquote experts, air quotes here, which you can't see, a lot of experts really aren't that expert, but they make up for it by trying to over-service the client. So it's it's a lack of expertise wrapped up in too much customer service rather than solving the expertise equation first. If you solve the expertise equation, you want to treat people respectfully, but you don't have to treat them any more than that. It's it's just not necessary. What's more important is the expertise. I couldn't agree more.
0: I want to talk a little bit about um, three different things that you call out in the book. And I i really believe together these create this ability to say no that we've touched on. But it's confidence, opportunity, and capacity. Mm. And I loved your take on that. Walk us through that, please.
1: Yes, I remember exactly when that thought hit me. And I was driving through a snowstorm, actually, somewhere in Iowa, somewhere. And it was late night. And I I didn't know who to talk with about this idea. And I called Blair Enns, who's my my, um, co-host on a podcast. And I said, I have got this great idea. And I remember he was not that interested in it. He was like what I call pre-impressed. He wasn't impressed at all, but he was open to the idea of being pre-impressed. The idea is that Uh, because I noticed, I just left a place I was working with, and I realized that I believed in this principal's expertise more than they did. They didn't have much confidence. And it hit me that if I could reach down inside them and raise their confidence level so that they began to recognize how valuable they were in the marketplace, it could solve a lot of issues for them. But that's the kind of thing that your mommy does for you. It's like, how parents believe in you as a young child in spite of all the contrary evidence. And I couldn't do that for them. I, once they're at a certain age, they're, they're just not going to listen to me about that. So I realized at that point that what drives me to help fix experts positioning is so that I can give them more leads with a lead generation plan that they implement with discipline but that's because they don't have enough innate confidence because there are a lot of experts who are poorly positioned, who are making a lot of money. How do we explain that? It's because they're very, very confident. So to the rest of the world, to the most, the rest of the experts who don't have that, and that would be most of them, they need the marketplace to confirm their value. They need that confidence that comes from marketplace acceptance. So that's when I introduce the second notion. So we have confidence and then opportunity. And so if you don't have much confidence as an expert, you have to have great positioning so that you start to learn and your knowledge is deeper. And then you have to have great lead generation so that the marketplace will over and over again say you're pretty smart. Okay, now the third component is capacity. So we have confidence, opportunity, and capacity. In the U.S. and in some other developed nations, we have this It's almost uh, a genetic predisposition to never say no to opportunity. So when the marketplace starts handing us more opportunity, we hire people to address this opportunity and so that we don't have to say no to it. We hate to waste it. But then we find that we have this big machine we need to keep feeding. And so the idea is that the idea that finally came from all of this is that we need to solve solve our this balance between opportunity and capacity so that our capacity is always slightly less than our opportunity because if we keep a gap between those two things then we can continue saying no without starving, the mistake is to build this machine so that we can say yes to all the opportunity that comes to us, which means we don't have power in the client relationship. It means we don't make money in the client relationship and so on. So that's how those three things work together.
0: Well you know, and when I read it, I thought, wow, this is just a really clear articulation of everything that I observe with our, you know, our clients all the time that, and, and I think the fact that you hit on this, this lack of confidence in the vast majority of experts out there. And I think a lot of that is just the nature of the beast. I mean, when you go through, you know, to get trained to be in an expert business. Most of the time you're getting trained in undergraduate school and then usually in advanced education. And you've got to get some letters after your name because those, you know, are somehow meaningful in all of this. And, you know, there are people who are always above you in the knowledge food chain mm-hmm. in whatever discipline you're in. And so I think it's very, and I think most professionals are fairly humble people by and large. I, I think, that confidence thing is is huge. We're we're taught to be modest, in in you know expert businesses most of the time. And help we're taught taught by our parents to be modest, you know most of the time. And so, um, and I've always thought that well the the answer to growing one of these businesses is just overwhelming opportunity, mm. but the the pushback that I always get from folks is well. Yeah, I don't I don't want so much that we can't handle at all. Mm-hmm. And I've never understood that. But I think you've you've put it perfectly. You want more opportunity than you have the capacity for. And you always want to maintain that gap. Even if you grow the firm, you want that gap to stay consistent.
1: Right. Yeah. So the question is, how big should the firm be? The, the glib answer is always smaller than your opportunity. Whatever your opportunity is, it ought to be smaller. Like you can imagine a, a firm listening to this and maybe they're going through a tough time. And they need, they're right at the edge of needing to lay people off. And so they think, and it's a very painful exercise for everybody. People are hurt, you know, it's emotional. And so they're thinking, okay, how deep do I cut? Well, okay, if I keep this person, yada, yada, let's cut right here. But as painful as it is, you need to cut deeper. You need to cut so that you can say no to work. If you just cut to the point where you have to say yes to everything, then you're going to end up being very unprofitable. So it doesn't matter how how successful your firm is or how much your firm is struggling. The glib answer is your size should always be less than your opportunity. Yeah,
0: well, and and I'll tell you where this comes in, and uh, my background is, is engineering, And you'll hear engineering firms talk about this all the time uh, about the idea of, well, we'll just take that project as a loss leader. Well, that's a retail concept and Mm -hmm. not a hugely successful one either. But I mean, they do that at the grocery store. It doesn't translate into this type of a business model, but you see people try and use that. And the reason that they use it is because they've got this machine that they've got to keep running. It's easier to break even which is the thinking I, I disagree with it but they think it's easier to, to just keep breaking even and keep the machine going mm-hmm. rather than adjust the machine so that it's right size for the opportunity
1: right or we have enough extra capacity here let's let our engineers and our our techs and our admins and so on, over-service the client, that'll make them even happier, but then we develop all these bad habits internally, and then the client expects more than they should be getting, and so on. It just becomes sort of a mess. Yeah, I'm a huge believer, in fact, my entire advising advisory business is really built on this notion that the success of professionals has very little to do with their intelligence, it has very little to do with their uh, creativity, it really is tied more to their ability to make smart business decisions and their discipline. That's, that's an innate belief. And so I, because I look across, I look, look out there at firms, whether engineering or architectural or whatever, and some of the most creative innovative folks are making no money and it doesn't make sense to me. Right. Except in the context of, wow, maybe, so if we're going to run a business, whatever creativity we have, whatever, whatever innovation bug we have, it needs to be wrapped in good business decisions. The, the lawyer I have the most, I guess, secret love for is the managing partner, the one who helps make those specific smart business decisions.
0: Absolutely. Let's um, kind of change gears here. Let's talk about positioning because um, I, I believe positioning is really the, the foundation that will get you to that point of having all of the opportunity that you need and, and have the ability to maintain that gap. And you've got an entire section of the book on positioning. It is, I think, one of the most unique approaches to this idea of positioning that has been covered so many times in so many books. But Yours is very refreshing and it's very understandable. And so talk to us a little bit about your approach to positioning.
1: I was kind of disgusted about positioning and that's what launched my own maybe unique perspective on it. And it comes from the fact that so many people in the marketing field would talk about branding and the way they use the word branding was almost meant as a substitution for positioning. but. When you hear them talk about branding, you realize very quickly that they're not using branding in the sense that it that the term was originally created. You know, you think about a farmer who's looking out on the back 40 and there's 40 black Holstein cows and and he doesn't remember which ones were vaccinated, which ones were moved from this feedlot. They all kind of look the same. Him, or he wants to make sure nobody can, nobody else can steal him, and he can't find him. You know, so he decides, okay, I'm going to brand him, and the whole purpose of branding in that context is to put a permanent. Indelible mark on somebody, and and it's so painful that you're basically wrestling a cow to the ground and putting a hot piece of metal on their asses, and they're screaming. It hurts so bad. That's what branding is, folks. It's not this bullshit that marketing firms do, where they're just they're just coming up with some quick, handy, feel good. Uh, process that doesn't last a long time. And so that's where the disgust came in. And I that began a very long journey to think about what branding really is, what positioning really is. I don't like the word branding at all. I do like the word positioning. The idea of positioning is simply a license to learn. It's a license. It's, it's basically drawing your playground so that you can own something. Now, unless there are some other competitors in there, it's not a good positioning decision. Some people, when they're on this process, at the beginning of the process, they'll look around and they'll get really excited because they don't find any other firm that does what they're intending to do. And they think, oh my goodness, we can own this. This is fantastic. No, that's the wrong positioning decision because what you're saying there is that you're the smartest person in the world and nobody else has thought of it yet. The fact is that a lot of other people have thought of it and they tried it and decided it was either too narrow or it wasn't viable or whatever. So we are looking for a positioning decision that has neighbors in it, that where other people are playing in that same space. But we don't want so many that there are too many viable substitutes. Here's how I think of it. Positioning is really about distributed control, especially in the context of professional services. By distributed control, I mean that each party, the professional, the expert, and then the client, has some control in their relationship. This is not how I think personal relationships should work, but I think business relationships should look th- work this way. So let's use me as an example. The control that my client has with me is they can not be available when I need it. They maybe don't do their homework. They fight the fee. There are 80, 100 ways they can, they can basically demonstrate their control, all the way to the ultimate demonstration of control, and that's simply to fire me, Okay. Now, what control do I have in that relationship? Because unless there's distributed control, unless both parties have some control, it's not a good professional relationship. The only control that any expert has in a professional relationship is to withhold your expertise. It's the only control you have. Okay. So imagine I want to or I feel the need to, even if I don't want to, I'm gonna withhold my expertise. That's when the clock starts. So it's tick-tock, tick-tock. The clock starts when I withhold my expertise for whatever reason. How long will it take my client to find what they deem to be a suitable substitute for my expertise? If they feel, and it doesn't matter if it's true or not, but if they feel like they can find a suitable substitute for my expertise, then I'm screwed because I have no leverage in the relationship because if I decide to withhold my expertise, whether it's real or imagined, they're not threatened by that by at all, right? But if they feel like it's gonna be hard to find a suitable expertise uh, you know, to replace me, then, you know, then I'm gonna have some power in the relationship. So I live in Nashville, I don't have any clients in Nashville, so I travel to every one of my clients. Why in the world would anybody hire me I'm not all that easy to work with. I'm blunt. Uh, my fees are ridiculously high. All that is true. All those things are true. Why would they work with me? And there's experts so much closer. It's because I know their businesses in the area where I focus. I know their businesses better than anybody else out there, even though I have some good, there are some good suitable experts. I, I shouldn't say that I know I'm the only one that knows that stuff. There are, there are 10 or 20 of them. So that's how this positioning works in real life. And unless you're willing to narrow your focus, you're not going to have that irreplaceableness, nor are you going to be able to learn enough because you'll be so distracted by all the things you could have learned in this bigger playground.
0: You know, there there was a ton of wisdom in all of that. And uh, I always like to sit here and think through, for somebody listening, what... What are they going to take away from that? and How are they going to push back? Because you and I both know that most professionals get scared when we talk about this, because really what we're telling them to do is back to where we started. We're telling them to say no to things, to mm-hmm. say no to some opportunities because they've narrowed their focus and that becomes really challenging to do. Um, in fact, I happen to have my, my folks in town. My dad's a, a newly retired CPA. And uh, he was getting lots of calls until the firm that that bought his firm finally transferred the phone lines. And he said, it pained him to say no to those people. Mm -hmm. It pained him to refer them on, you know, he's retired at this stage. Right. And and that, I think that experience is what most go through. So if, if you're in the position of somebody who is struggling to say no, what do you tell them?
1: Mm. Well, I I kind of joke about this. I recommend that they stand in front of the mirror and they have to actually take their fingers and help form the word no with their own lips because it's so painful. They have to force themselves to say no. The other thing is just to fast forward in their lives and say, and I'll ask them this frequently, I'll say, all right, fast forward To whatever age you feel like you're going to start slowing down, or maybe an age where you're going to be a little bit more reflective. And then look back on your life and tell me why you weren't as effective as you could have been. So just tell me, like, if if life doesn't change for you, if you keep making the same decisions, you're not going to be as effective as you could have been 10, 15, 30 years from now. Why do you think that is? Is it because you didn't have enough opportunity? Or is it because you didn't focus? Because in our world, as in by our, I mean in the luxury we live in, you look around, we're living in a developed culture with so much opportunity where the opportunity is falling off the trucks. If you don't have enough opportunity consistently, and unless you've just started your business, then you're just flat incompetent. I mean, that's why I'm not a motivational speaker, those kinds of <laughs> statements, right? You're just flat and competent. No, if you get to that reflective point in your life and you look back and you say you were not as effective as you could have been, it will not be because you didn't have enough opportunity. It will be because you didn't make the tough, hard choices. So if you are terrified that you're not going to have enough opportunity then you're either incompetent or you need a reality check about how competent you really are and you need to quit worrying about it. Like you, you're successful. I'm successful. We, we both know hundreds of people who who are successful, but it's not because they chose this one particular path in life. And if they'd chosen anything else, they would have been screwed. It's not that way. I I've on my list of things, I've got 22 things I want to be when I grow up and I'm only doing one of them, right? I'm, and that also comes down to something else. I think it's really important for us all to just admit. It's like, what's the worst that could happen to us? What literally, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, I could be homeless. Could I live that way? I could live that way. I picture myself homeless all the time. I'm writing a novel right now about me being homeless in Nashville. I can picture it. We're all two or three stupid mistakes away from being homeless. Is that Okay yes it 's okay so let 's just have a little bit more courage about the positioning decisions we 've made of the nine hundred professionals i 've worked with intimately, only two of them have made bad positioning decisions you know that went bad for them. The rest of them, none of them would regret the positioning decisions they made, but it wasn 't like it had to have been this one. no, there were three or four opportunities, and they just happened to pick one and it was okay and now all of a sudden. They're you know years down the road, and they're deep experts. They're getting paid well, and they're having huge impact on their clients, but not because they made the exact right decision. No, it's because they made a decision that happened to be one of the good choices.
0: I I couldn't agree more. And what what we always tell the businesses that we work with is that, look, nobody's saying that when you make this decision that it's you know until death. Do you part the earth that that you're living with this, right? It, it can be temporary. We don't advise it. You know, we don't advise you to change it every quarter, but you know, if you get into it and realize this was a colossal bad decision, you can change it. Right. Haven't experienced that yet with any of ours, but, uh, but you can change. And, and it's, it's so interesting. The, the businesses that, that struggle to, find opportunity are the ones who don't have any focus. My, my wife works uh, in an ophthalmology practice and, and uh, you know, when patients come in and they can't see anything in the world, it's because it's all fuzzy. It's all blended together. And that's really, I think the view of the world from inside of a business that has no focus, call it a position, call it a niche, call it whatever you want. The whole world is just fuzzy. Everything looks like it could be an opportunity. So you don't know where to put your time.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and back to the issues like the world has so many distractions in it, especially for intelligent, curious people. That's why it's so hard for potential experts to be actual experts because of the world and who they are as people.
0: I got to tell you, um, David, this is one of my most enjoyed interviews um, in the entire podcast series. Um, I, I thank you very much for taking the time to come on today. And, and, uh, the book is, is fantastic. And, and for, uh, anyone listening, you really need to go and, and get a copy of, uh, of David's book, the business of expertise. Um, you'll find it under David C Baker, I assume at, uh, at Amazon and all the usual places. Yeah, and, and of course at, at your website, expertise.is.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh,
0: so before we wrap things up, any kind of parting thoughts you want to share with the, the folks listening today
1: i just admire experts and i i just want to say that publicly i just think they're in such a unique place to change the world they're adding value and the you know we've all seen office space right where this where we have these two bumbling incompetent experts, the two Bobs all the time. And it's it's easy to make fun of experts in that sense. But I think good experts who are doing the work day in and day out and changing their clients' lives, I just have such admiration for them. These are people who are courageous. They tend to their craft, their discipline. They speak courageously to situations, whether they're architects or lawyers or doctors or engineers or marketing consultants. I just think we live in a world that it's so amazing to have these opportunities. So it's been, thank, it's been really fun chatting with your audience. Thanks for having me. It's been
0: a great pleasure and, uh, and I've learned a ton um, and I, I now need to go back and reread the book because I picked up a couple of new nuggets and I need to go reinforce them. So um, as you're listening to this, go find uh, expertise.is. You can find uh, David at davidcbaker.com. And definitely check out uh, his podcast with Blair Enns. Blair was a guest recently uh, on the podcast, and, and you can find the two of them teamed up on the two Bobs podcasts. And uh, what David, where, where's the best place for them to find the podcast?
1: Uh so the numeral two, so two bobs.com is the microsite, and that'll give them links to uh, subscribe on iTunes. Perfect. And we'll
0: have all that linked in the show notes. Check it out there. And uh, David, thanks for spending some time with me.
1: This has been fun. Thank you, Steve. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating on iTunes at unstoppableceo.net forward slash iTunes.